Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Greta Johnson, and this is the Nerd App Book Club. It's just like a regular book club, except you don't have to share your snacks. It is November, and this month's selection is C. Pam Zhang's Land of Milk and Honey. It is a book about a chef, a secretive research facility in the Alps, and seeking pleasure at the end of the world. That is all I am going to say for now, but this is a spoilery conversation. Here is your spoiler warning. That means if you have not read the book and you do not want to know what happens, go back and listen to our spoiler-free author interview in the feed. If you have read the book or you just want to know what happens, welcome. We are glad to have you. I am very excited to introduce you to this month's guests. With us, we have Eliza Abarbanel. She's a freelance writer and editor based in Brooklyn and the co-founder and co-editor of Cake Zine, an independent print publication exploring society through sweets. She also co-hosts the podcast This Is Taste and interviewed Pam for the show a couple months ago. Eliza, welcome. Thank you for having me. I love another excuse to get to talk about this book because all of my friends are sick of it. (laughs) Well, good. That's perfect. I'm very happy that we could oblige. (laughs) Also here is Miriam Kramer. She's a news editor at WPLN in Nashville. Before jumping into public radio, she was a space and science reporter for about 10 years. Miriam, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Okay, so let's start with a listener voicemail. Here is Betsy. Talk about a slow burn that seared the bottom of the pot to near obscurity. At times, it was like a postmodern opera, a tasting menu, gastronomy horror that really challenges current attitudes about food and privilege and even colonialism. It kind of poked at queerness, maternal loss, identity, displacement, family, community, and home. It was such a deep book and yet so short. Betsy, I feel like that was a poem. How beautifully put. Um, let's start with the food. I am fascinated by the phrase gastronomy horror, which is one that I had never heard, but I feel like it is very apt. Eliza, is that a term you're familiar with? <laughs> yeah, I think um, the menu is a good example of gastronomy horror, uh, maybe. I feel mm. like the, I've seen other things. I think movies may be gastronomy horror more than food, but there are definitely mm-hmm. unsettling moments with food in the book. And I think part of that is the narrator's like lack of appetite herself. Like she's making all these over the top things and can't bear to stomach them. And I think that kind of starts in this unsettling place where things can go from there. Mm. Yeah. It was funny talking to Pam because she told me that some people were really intrigued by the dishes that she writes about and others were extremely not. And I was curious where you two fall on that spectrum. Like I think in general, I mean, sure there were some meals that sounded good, but a lot of them were like, so decadent that they did indeed seem quite revolting. Miriam, what did you think? I I fell definitely in line with you. <laughs> like I I thought that uh, like 
listening to sort of the technique of how to make the food that that the the you know the narrator was making was like fascinating and and cool <laughs> um but the food itself like i i really found most of it pretty revolting which was so interesting and i mean part of it was also i think like the the privilege of these characters to be eating it in the first place yes. and like that like naturally icky feeling that that evoked for me plus like just like the extreme amounts of of butter and these like you know these super decadent dishes it just at a certain point it was just sort of like oh man i don't i don't think i want to be eating when i'm reading this book <laughs> Yeah, I think I wanted to eat like the produce itself a lot more than the things that were being made with it. I feel like <laughs> the moment reading this book where I knew that I was hooked uh, is the scene when she's, you know, she's been asked to have a test for her employer to make strawberry shortcakes and the way that Pam writes about strawberries um, is so yes. sensual and beautiful. Like I wanted to eat a whole carton of strawberries, but I think a lot of the very like classic French dishes that are being made in the book, certainly when they're eating orangutan, like I didn't really want to eat any of that. The woolly mammoth, like not for me. (laughs) No, that sounded so revolting. So revolting. Yeah. I love hearing what you're talking about with the sensuality of the food writing, because there is like such a sensuality to all of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that like as a food person, and I think a lot of people, whether or not you work in food, if you would self-describe as a food person, you lust after produce. Um, you know, every year I wait for a stone fruit season to hit. So I think to think mm-hmm. about, well, what if I had gone years without eating these things? Like how much more mm-hmm. uh, concentrated would my lust and desire be? And I think that's what the writing does a good job of accomplishing. For sure. So Miriam, you brought up another really interesting point about this book, which is around the idea of focusing on this like extremely elite community, which of course is deeply problematic in a number of ways, especially when you're talking about the end of the world. Um, What did you think about that choice that like this was sort of the lens through which we're considering, you know, in a lot of ways, a very imminent future? Yeah, I think I think that's one of the more intriguing parts of the book to me also like this idea of okay we're going to focus on this community of extremely privileged like rich people yeah who all seem pretty awful too you know exactly well that that's the thing for me about this book too it's I don't feel a ton of empathy for this group Mm -mm. like there are certain things that I I think are intriguing about them and about like their worldview and just sort of the experience that they are living inside of like this bubble. Um, But I didn't find myself empathizing, which I think is is sort of an amazing thing (laughs) when you spend this whole novel with this group. And like I, I, I but I also didn't want to stop reading about them. Like I didn't I didn't find it revolting enough to like put it aside and sort of be like, okay, I don't want to spend any more time with these people. Like it was just, it's sort of a a pretty amazing line to have walked, Mm. I guess, if if that makes sense. Well, yeah, I think, I think it speaks to something that I couldn't quite put my finger on until now, but I think there's a real cognitive dissonance with the whole thing. And to, Mm. to, to be there is, it's a really interesting space to occupy. Is that something you find yourself thinking about too, Eliza? Definitely. You know, I watched um, Triangle of Sadness for the first time last week and it's a movie that is set on a yacht that the like ultra elite are on and um, things fall apart, I guess, like the fabric of of society kind of 
falls apart very quickly and there's a very uh, stomach churning like uh, seasickness scene that happens during the captain's dinner that is truly like it's beyond disgusting but I think in all of these moments like food is being used as the vehicle that's kind of elevating people and then also humanizing them in that like no one can keep their food down uh, when there's a storm on the ship you know or in the case of this book all these like foods that she's cooking specifically for people from their childhood. Like there's these, I think there's these moments of humanity where uh, these people that have like such a strong facade up or have so much wealth and privilege are reduced to their childhood because they eat something that reminds them of that. Um, And -hmm. also one of the reasons why they all are here in the first place is that they are like wanting to be fed in this way. But then at the same time, they're also unlikable and terrible. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's such a, it's funny even placing this in the context of like your white Lotus or whatever, like we definitely, or succession even yes. right? of just like, we do have a fascination with horrible people. It's funny though, because I think, I don't know, it's interesting to compare it to something like, at least for me, succession or white Lotus. I think I found less distinctly unpleasant than this one in a really interesting way where I don't know, like this book, it just felt so deeply ominous to me throughout, even when things seem to be going kind of okay. You know what I mean? Yeah, there's this ominous element to the book, I think in part because so many of the decisions being made are based in this fear. Like they're they're like dressed up as a a hopeful like hope for humanity like this is the the answer to our our problems mm-hmm. but in reality like who is it helping it's helping these this tiny number mm-hmm. of people and they're doing it because they're frightened of the world that like they in part helped create right and i guess also like uh when we talk about succession or the white lotus like we certainly are living in tumultuous stratified times but the world is not ending on the same timeline that the world is ending in land of milk and honey that's very true. That's mm. an important distinction. Yeah, that's true. So yeah, let's talk about the world ending because uh, Miriam, as we mentioned, you know, as a space and science reporter, I imagine that you especially have thought about kind of the future and what life might look like at farther into a climate disaster or even after one. Um, the idea of being on a planet where no strawberries will grow. Um, I don't know. Like, was the world in this book somewhat familiar to you, do you think? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's it's uh, it's interesting. I one of one of my colleagues here, Caroline, uh, is a really amazing environment reporter, and she was we were talking earlier, and she was just like, "Yeah, I mean, you know, all fiction in the future in some way is going to be climate fiction." Right. Um, and I think that that's true of this book right now, and I, I think that's that's like a really astute way of thinking about it. Like this, uh, our world is fundamentally already changed by climate change like it's it's we are living in a time where that's happening it's now yeah exactly and it's like yeah we're not at the point where we're you know just eating mung bean flour and that's like our main form thank god subsistence yeah (laughs) yeah um but we are at a point where you know climate disasters are happening and it's harder to to grow crops in certain areas. I mean, like Nashville, where I am now, like uh, we just sort of our our hardiness zone changed. Mm. So like if you garden at at all, hardiness zones kind of tell you what can grow in your area Mm -hmm. most robustly. And our our zone has changed and will likely continue to change. So it's it's small incremental changes that lead up to 
to big problems. Yeah. Eliza, how much do you think about that from from the food perspective too? Well, I guess I think about the world ending a lot. <laughs> um, <laughs> not in like an insane way, but I, I grew up in California and I think that when you oh, grow up in a place that yeah. has water rationing, like just as part of your childhood or like when you drive through the state and you see a lot of signs about like agriculture using water, I think that's kind of always mm-hmm. a part of my framework. Um, and I think in regards to this book, yeah, I go to the farmer's market here in New York Uh, as often as I can, you know, a couple times a month, maybe every week. And I always am asking the farmers, oh, when are you going to get this in? Because I want to cook with it, you know, or how long are the cherries going to stick around this summer? And earlier in the year, we had a very late frost here on the East Coast, and it really impacted Mm -hmm. the amount of stone fruit that we were able to eat, which just as someone that I would like self-describe as like a fruit hedonist, probably like that was something that I <laughs> felt and was worried about. And, you know, like having less apricots to eat this summer is, is not as significant as a problem as what this book is talking about, or certainly like what food insecurity means with climate change in general. But I think that like, that's always top of mind. And certainly in a lot of the writing that I do in the food space, I'm always interested in talking about this concept of sustainability. I think that's a big buzzword for mm. restaurants, certainly. And, grocery stores, but it doesn't like have a lot of concrete things that it's rooted in. And I think that in this context, uh, sustainability just doesn't even exist at all, right? Because it's only for the very few. Yeah. Well, I think partly that's what this book does so well is that I think in general, and I think we're all getting better at it, but I think when it comes to climate change, it's such a vast story and it can feel so lacking in concrete details that I think that's been part of the problem for a very long time, right? Is that, you know, it's been difficult for us to look around and be able to actually say like, oh yeah, no, that's definitely because of climate change. And of course, I think that has changed even just in the last couple of years. But I I think it's really interesting to think about how something like fiction can occupy a space that that really does help solidify what we're talking about here. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's like actually quite crucial to have fiction that can reflect these big complicated concepts and that was actually something that I I loved about this book. Like it didn't spend all of this time sort of preaching about climate change Mm -hmm. or it it was very like show don't tell. (laughs) And I think that that's a really great way of reaching people Um, and sort of explaining like, yeah, you know, things may feel good right now, but like this world that is being imagined is absolutely possible Mm -hmm. depending on what we do now. All right. We will keep discussing land, milk and honey right after this break. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. 
So Eliza, I loved the conversation that you had with Pam. I thought that one thing she talked about really beautifully with you was um, the beauty of food partly as a mechanism for getting out of your brain and into your body, which I think this book also did really well. Yeah, I loved that. I think how we started talking about that is that the acknowledgement section of this book is like 95% meals that she's eaten, um, which (laughs) is more than like any acknowledgement section in a book. I've ever read before, certainly in a novel. Um, And I think that, like, obviously this is a food book, but I think it's more deeply a pleasure book. And that comes through in terms of this romance that happens, um, in terms of, like, the kind of discomfort that the narrator feels in her own body at the same time. And I think that, like, eating food is such a huge vehicle for pleasure for people. So it is such a nice way to kind of be using this sensual language to talk about sex, but also to talk about fruit at the same time. I think it, like, connects very organically, um, at the risk of making a pun. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it, it reminds me of something else Pam said in that interview, which is that we need to take pleasure seriously if we intend to survive. And I think it's so gorgeous because so often in context of, I mean, you know, even the context of the pandemic, when you think about survival, pleasure is not necessarily on the top of that list, right. Of things we are supposed to be doing or thinking about or prioritizing, And I think that's another thing that this book did really beautifully was to, to address the importance of pleasure when it comes to humanity. I think underlining the fact that pleasure in many of its forms is sort of at risk Mm. because of these existential problems we're facing, like climate change. It is also something that can get to people where they are, you know, like it's something that I think can hit you in a way that kind of hits you where you live. And I think that that's something that this book does really beautifully. And it's really it's through this like pretty small story. I mean, the story is about one person and her interactions with like a handful of people who are, you know, sort of have this importance to the rest of the world. But like, I think that is part of what makes it so powerful is, is just its um, its ability to kind of put you in the position of of seeing how pleasure can be affected by these bigger, more consequential things to the world, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think um, everybody needs the carrot at the end of the stick, right, that you get through. <laughs> and I think that maybe for me it is a literal carrot or produce. And for someone else, it's mm-hmm. being able to go to the beach, <laughs> you know, um, or like another aspect of existing in the natural world that I think, mm-hmm. um, I don't know, it can be very demoralizing to think about climate change, especially as an individual. And I think that like to bring it back to food, when we talk about eating sustainably, it's always on a very like, this is change that you can make as an individual. When I think we all know that we need kind of systemic Uh, government-led, like, widespread change to keep us from getting to this world that they end up in in this book. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm always reluctant, I think, as a food writer. You know, I want to tell people eating sardines is more sustainable than tuna, but I don't want people to think that that means that it's all on them or that, like, that is going to be the answer of how we get there. But I think that reminding people of what's at stake, like, on a existential level, but also just on a personal level in terms of these things that I'm talking about, like we want to have access to in the future. I think that's really helpful. Yeah, for sure. So 
Miriam, I would love to talk about uh, how you ended up on this podcast because um, <laughs> it has to do with our mutual friend, even though I've never met him in real life. I think it's fair to call him a friend, MJ Franklin, who works at the New York Review of Books and has been on Nerdat a number of times. And he actually was a panelist for last month's book, The Vaster Wilds. And in that conversation, he mentioned a friend of his who's a science reporter and how one time he was watching, I believe it was a nature documentary and and the his science reporter friend like had turned to him and said something like the reason we always root for the predators is because they uphold the entire ecosystem or something like that. Does that ring a bell for you? It does. I believe <laughs> I believe we were watching Planet Earth and it was at one of my birthday parties <laughs> in New York. And it was I, you know, I'm a big time nerd. So my birthday party involved uh, drinking wine and watching Planet Earth Amazing. and eating cake. So, uh, yeah, it was great. Uh, but I, it's always sort of struck me, um, and uh, this is probably what MJ was, was talking about, that uh, you really should root for the predator <laughs> when, you know, you see, uh, you know, a, a cheetah chasing an antelope or whatever, whatever it might be. Because the thing about the predator is that they keep the prey in check. <sighs> um like you look around uh, the U.S. now and there's just like an overabundance of deer. Mm. Um, and part of that is that like humans hunted away all their natural predators. Mm. Um, or, uh, most of them, a lot of them. Um, and so now there's just like a, a plethora of these prey animals. And, and it, you know, you need the predator and the prey to keep the ecosystem in balance. Uh, and so... I, you know, whenever I'm watching Planet Earth, which honestly we we do once a week with my <laughs> oldest child, uh, we like we sort of talk about it. Like I was talking to him about it last night that it's like kind of, you know, you want the the predator to survive. And, and most of the time they're not going to get the prey, um, but they need it uh, to live. <laughs> uh, so that's I, I think that's probably what MJ was talking about. Yes. It's it's yeah. I just love it in the context of this book. It was pretty funny sitting here thinking about like, okay, who would be a good panelist for this? What about that person MJ knows who loves predators? <laughs> because I do think that this book, like it's obviously it's an examination of survival. And I think so often, maybe even especially within the context of the American dream, we so often think of survival as like endurance and, you know, like all of these like positive attributes, but there really is a brutality to it too, that I think this book captures really well. And I just think is really interesting. Yeah, completely. I mean, I think that there's that, that brutality is so present in the natural world and we are often so insulated from yes. it as humans living in in the modern world um but in many ways like the natural world relies on that brutality and when you you know when we as humans come in and sort of mess up an ecosystem as we are want to do um it has a ripple effect like it doesn't just affect the predator it doesn't just affect the prey like it ultimately it comes back around and affects us too yeah, I think even among the humans in this book, like there's so much math around, you know, there are only so many seats on the spaceship, you know, it's really interesting to think about that idea of like, if, if I'm going to make it, someone else has to suffer for it. And I thought that was another thing that this book did a really good job of, of showing and not telling. 
the calculus, especially at the last maybe quarter of the book when uh, the plans for leaving the hilltop have become quite clear and everyone is trying to get their spot is super real. And I think that, you know, it's like Titanic on the lifeboat or anything in that moment. And I think that, Mm -hmm. again, to connect it to the food side of things, this idea that like for you to make it, someone else has to suffer. I think that like, unfortunately, that's a huge part of our food systems that we have in this moment in time with like people that are working in slaughterhouses or like working in like fields, like picking produce. I think that we're really removed from all of the systems to get the food to us um, when you can go to the grocery store and get whatever. But uh, yeah, that calculus is happening in all parts of our lives. Yeah, it absolutely is. Speaking of that calculus, I thought one thing this book did very well in another, uh, in another very artful way was discussing the mythology around the American dream. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I sort of, I, I have two kids and I, I found myself sort of thinking about, about them. Um, and the, you know, the things that were promised to me when I was a kid and, you know, this idea of this like bright future and, uh, you know, a future that's sustainable mm-hmm. in many ways, uh, you know, that's protected. And, um, you know, I think about like what I can't promise to them mm-hmm. that was in many ways promised to me. Like I, I think, and I, I think the book does a good job of, of, sort of talking about that like I I found actually the the moments where she would uh, sort of think about and talk about the uh, the closed border mm. of the U.S. Mm-hmm. and and she still despite that border being closed like had this hope that it would open for her mm. because that is her country right you know and so I think that that's also part of you know, our American consciousness and our story as, as a group is just this, this hope that the country will see us through. Yeah, I, I relate to that. Um, and I think also this idea of the like point system to get back in, right? That like for every generation mm. that your family has been in the United States, you get a point. But if you have an ethnic background from a country that they view as undesirable, you're negative a point. Like that isn't just science fiction that's rooted in like very real immigration policies that the U.S. has had for different groups over time. But I think to see it kind of as this specter that comes up again in the future, or also something that I kind of spoke with Pam a lot about on my podcast was the way that like governments would prop up um, certain kinds of restaurants that like there were Mm -hmm. no Thai restaurants left in LA um, or that like the only restaurants left in Paris were French restaurants and any like potatoes that they had left were going there to be made into pomme dauphine or something like that. I think that um, those feel like they're a part of the past. But when I read them in this context of the future, I did have this moment of grim recognition where I was like, oh, yeah, I bet a a fascist or like alt-right government or maybe not even a fascist or alt-right government. I bet a government that is like positioned in this moment in time would kind of regress to do those things again. That's wild. So... Would you have kept your spot on the rocket ship, Miriam? If you were, I know it's a lot of (laughs) things to imagine (laughs) getting to that stage, but I don't know if you were in that position, would you, would you stick with it or would you get the hell out of there? Okay. So I have to preface this with, 
most of the past 10 years, I have been a space beat right. reporter. Right. I was thinking, yeah, you're going. You're getting the hell out um, of here. No, no, no. I am not really? going. <laughs> I am absolutely not getting on that That's rocket. fascinating. Okay, so why? Okay, so there are a few different reasons. First of all, I, I'm i a rare and weird space beat reporter that had no real desire to go I to space. I was going to say. Um, <laughs> I've, I often told people I've seen too many rockets explode, oh, like I'm good. God. Um, yeah, it's not great. Um, but when I when like the reveal of the rocket happened, yeah. I was like, "Oh boy, <laughs> like this thing's gonna explode." It's like Chekhov's gun for you. You're just like, "I know exactly yeah. what's happening with this situation." Exactly, oh exactly, God. because it was. It's I I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of testing and a lot of work that go that goes into rockets and making sure they're safe. And you do not want to be on the maiden launch of a rocket. (laughs) That is the last place anyone wants to be. So, yeah, you want to give up your seat. Oh, my gosh. That's so (laughs) funny. I had not thought of it in that context, but it makes sense that you would have. Eliza, were you like, oh, it's going to explode? Um, I didn't think that, but I was like, girl, get off that rocket. Like, <laughs> you don't, you don't want to be stuck up there. With all, if the best case scenario is that you're I know, stuck in right? orbit with them, like pass. I, I would rather Mm-mm. take my chances yeah. elsewhere. And like, where were they going? Oh. I got a lot of questions about the rocket. It's <laughs> so funny. Yeah, I, I get it. I get it. Um, so when I talked to Pam, I asked her a spoilery question. Um, which we're going to listen to now. And it's about her decision to kind of like have the world's climate crisis be solved at the end of the book, which I thought was a really interesting narrative choice. I would love to hear what she has to say about it. And then to, to ask both of you what you thought of that. What was interesting to me in creating the solution in the world of the book was that on my first attempt, I had it be a completely human built solution. And then I had a very canny reader and friend of mine who sort of pushed back on that, who found that sort of too pat. Um, and I, I agreed with her because there's a lot in my book about this funny human hubris um, that we sort of run into when we think of important causes such as environmentalism, right? Because the the planet has such astonishing longevity and and inconceivable power. Um, And it feels like really ridiculous to think that we humans alone must, must come up with the solutions for everything, which is not to say that, you know, climate activism and divesting from fossil fuels are not important, but I am just really, really curious about what we can't know and what we can't solve on our own. Yeah. I mean, I think one of my favorite parts of the book is that the world doesn't end forever. I think that maybe because I do think about the world ending, I I almost was, I was like, oh, right. Like that's another option. Like we, we can fix Mm -hmm. things. Um, And I think that like, you know, I wouldn't call it climate optimism per se, but it, it did feel optimistic, I think, to to end it in that way. Um, and then because I am a sucker for the natural world, I loved that, um, you know, the dandelions were a part of the solution. It felt, um, it felt very right to be like reminding humans that like the solutions are not things we can always generate, but that have been in front of us all along. And we just need to kind of protect them and look for them. Hmm, that is really lovely. Um, Miriam, I think partly what I found confusing about it is that I, the book is not inherently optimistic and yet the, it still felt a little bit like a bow was being tied at the end to me. Did that, how did you feel about it? 
Yeah, I, I sort of see how how it feels like a bit of a bow. And I, I think I agree with it. But I, I really love I actually think that hearing Pam's answer um, helps me with the end of the book a little bit, mm. because I, I also was feeling that it's a little a little pat. Um, but I it, her answer reminded me of this book that was really influential to me in, in college, which is called The World Without Us. Mm. Um, and it was just, it, it's not fiction. It's about how, what the world would look like if humans just kind of disappeared. <laughs> um, and it was kind of, it was just about how like very quickly nature would overtake, mm. um, very quickly, like things would start coming back into balance in these really interesting ways. And it wouldn't be perfect and it wouldn't be immediate, but that like, our earth kind of has this ability to, and this is very unscientific, but this like ability to repair itself mm. <laughs> um, and to correct a lot of the the wrongs that, you know, are visited upon it. Um, and so I think that drawing from that idea is is a really kind of special way of thinking about, you know, the future of, of the, the climate crisis potentially. Okay, so... Every month we pick a completely arbitrary rating system for our books. We thought this time around it would be fun to do pints of strawberries since obviously they're such a huge and luscious and evocative part of this story. Um, So yeah, I don't know, like I guess out of a hundred pints of strawberries, which is a shit ton of strawberries. um, Miriam, how many strawberries would you give this book? I, you know, I think I, I give it like, 80 overripe strawberries. I, I really enjoyed it. <laughs> and I feel like overripe is right for this book. <laughs> it is. Oh my God, that's perfect. What do you think, Eliza? I was also thinking somewhere around the 80s. Um, and I, I think overripe is the, is the way to go. Maybe I'll say like 85 pints. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I think I think 80 sounds about right for me too. I think in general, this book was like a little more like just unpleasant than I generally like my stories to be, but I'm so glad I read it. And I think it's just so evocative and there's so much to talk about with it that I think it still was, I'm so glad I read it and I'm really glad we had a chance to discuss it too. Yeah. I love that we all came to the same general conclusion of the number of pints of strawberries. That makes me happy. (laughs) Perfect. It's perfect. (laughs) I, I would say like, I don't know if obviously the plot is incredibly unpleasant and a lot of the characters but I found this to be a very like pleasurable read maybe just because I thought like Pam's writing style was so poetic and beautiful and I have a lot of friends that have borrowed my copy and I think some people maybe don't don't love that quite as much like that kind of uh really like luscious immersive writing style but like Mm. to me like I really appreciated that and I think that the contrast between this kind of like sparse world and the prose between it was was really special. I love that. I feel so similarly. I have I think I have this like sense memory that I will always take with me of this book of being in a coffee shop when I was in my week between jobs just recently reading this book sitting on this like very comfy sofa and drinking a coffee and it was just like the prose was so beautiful and the like you said the world is is sparse but like the language is so rich. I, I, I agree. Like, yeah, like the, the plot is a bit unpleasant, but like the, the language was so beautiful that to me it kind of more than made up for it. Miriam, I'm wondering if you remember like what section of the book you were reading in the coffee shop. 
Ooh. Oh my God. Yeah. I think that it was when, uh, <laughs> I think it was when the point of view character and Aida like are really like vibing <laughs> I think before anything physical happened and they were sort of talking menu stuff. And it was like, it was that like sort of moment leading up to like their eventual like connection. Um, and I want to say they were building like some some menus. It was definitely in the first half of the book. Yeah. But the chef was looking at her lips a lot, right? I loved how yeah, much, exactly, how many lips exactly. described. It was like, oh yeah, they're definitely going to hook up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was like the moment she came on the scene, I was like, oh, uh-huh. that's, that's going to happen. Yeah. I remember that too, which, you know, um, Pam's previous book is also, it has elements of queerness. And I know that, like that's part of her writing in general, but when I mm. really understood that they were going to hook up I feel like I I texted like three different people and I was like it's happening (laughs) (laughs) it's gay (laughs) I would love to talk a little bit about um books that y'all would recommend that you think are kind of in conversation with this one and that can be interpreted very broadly this could be topic or tone or setting or really anything at all. Um, I think you both have already mentioned pretty good ones. I was going to recommend how much of these Hills is gold, which is Pam's first book because it's very different, but so, so, so good. But I'm wondering if either of you have brought other titles that you'd like to shout out before we go today. Yeah. The first one that came to mind for me is this novel called gold fame citrus. Um, has anyone read it? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I came out in 20, maybe 2015. It's by Claire, Claire V. Watkins, um, which is like, I think tonally and subject wise, very similar. It's kind of this like poetic, apocalyptic love story that's happening um, with also like a dust bowl that's sweeping across the country. And in this case, uh, a couple in California, in LA, um, when all the rich people have left and everyone else is kind of stuck who uh, encounter a child and then try to take her into the desert to find something better. Um, And it has like a lot of people thirsting for different kinds of things and obviously fruit as a metaphor. Um, and I think that it's probably the most similar book to this that I've read. I think that's a great recommendation. Yes. Yeah. I have, I have one that's definitely not like a, a, a perfect match, but one that for some reason I could not get out of my head. Um, it's breasts and eggs by Miko Kawakami. Mm, cool. Um, and it's, it's just, that, that breast and eggs and the land of milk and honey both have this sort of like deep interior exploration of a woman that's just like going through some shit. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I also I remember in breast and eggs there were these like descriptions of food that were kind of like grotesque and interesting and like kind of like. Like gave me the same squicky feeling that I I got when they were eating you know mastodon um, in this book, uh, and I think that there there are just these interesting sort of crossovers there. And tonally, it's also very ominous. Um, like you'd never know quite what is going to happen next in either of these mm. books. Well, Eliza, Miriam, thank you both so much for coming on and for sharing your thoughts about this one. It was a real, it was a pleasure. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah. Thank you for having us. I'm going to go try to find some strawberries. All right. 
right. That's it for this month. Thank you as always for reading and listening along. Extra special thanks to our listener Betsy for leaving that amazing voicemail. As you already know, we are taking December off from book club, but I am very excited to tell you right this second that we have our January and February book club selections ready and I'm going to tell them to you right now. So get ready. Are you ready? Okay. Here it is. In January, we are reading Molly McGee's novel, Jonathan Abernathy, You Are Kind. And in February, we are reading Come and Get It by Kylie Reed. I cannot wait for y'all to read both of these books. So get them on your little library hold list or whatever you need to do because they're going to be fun. I think 2024 is going to be off to a great start personally. Nerdette is produced by me and Anna Bauman at WBEZ in Chicago. Our executive producer is Brendan Banaszak, and Nerdette is part of the NPR Network. We will see you on Friday. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Macs and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.